Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. And we say good morning, uh, Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio Worldwide, a conversation with the vice chairman of the Fed. He needs no introduction, Stanley Fisher's contribution to economics at the Massachusetts Institute of uh, Technology, his work uh, at the Bank of Israel and now at the Fed has been critical to stability and to economic growth uh, within uh, this world. I dare say I would mention the International Monetary Fund and a modest crisis of a few uh, years ago. You gave a speech, sir, a wonderful speech at Warwick to some undergraduates. It was just a great, simple speech. The economy is an extremely complicated mechanism. Are we getting more complicated because of rising inflation? Rising inflation in Germany, rising inflation for different reasons in the United Kingdom, and suddenly a lift in inflation in America. It was very complicated when the inflation rate was negative uh, and very low. Uh, this is, uh, we have a target of 2% inflation and uh, we're heading in that direction. And so it's not making life more complicated at the moment. Very high inflation, which of course we will do what we have to, to prevent, uh, could complicate the situation, but we're not there uh, by any means. How do you define high inflation? Not of Walter Heller of another time and place. I look at Dennis Lockhart, who will join us on Bloomberg later today. The Atlanta Fed numbers, sticky inflation, the Dallas inflation, the Cleveland inflation. What is the, 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 the number, the statistic that begins to suggest high inflation? Our uh, target is 2%. Obviously, you don't hit it exactly. You hope to be very close to uh, 2%. We're as worried about being below as being above. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, it's something which is if you're very close to 2%, it's not a problem. If it's significantly above, uh, you begin to worry and you begin to act. Part of our relationship over the years at Davos and in, in, in other important meetings has been, I really don't talk to you about the parlor game, but I unfortunately have to uh, today. I believe there is an Ides of March meeting, a March 15th meeting. We saw Jan Hatzius and Goldman Sachs change their probabilities of what the Fed will do. Not specifically, what will you do at the March meeting, but does this new inflation dynamic change the cadence of two or three uh, rate increases as we go to the end of the year? Well, I, I don't want to give you numbers on sure. two, two or three, uh, but we this is consistent with what we had thought uh, should be happening around, around now. Uh, that is that we'd be moving closer to the 2% inflation rate and uh, that the labor market would continue to strengthen. If those two things happen, uh, we'll, we'll be on uh, the path that we more or less expected. So important is the idea 
of moving through uh, the year for your Fed within the politics of Washington. As I'm sure you're aware, Washington's in turmoil. My colleague Michael McKee uh, was talking to me yesterday about how the Fed acts differently as you go to year end. This year end of 2017, I would suggest is different than any other year end you've seen. Maybe you will leave, maybe Chair Yellen will leave. Is there a political mix to the pressures you face in meetings later this year? We really uh, do not take, uh, make political decisions. We take into account what is happening uh, in the economy, what people think about, uh, and what might happen to uh, policy. But uh, we're not going to make uh, our decisions uh, on the basis of uh, mm. what, what the uh, what pressures we're getting politically. We have targets. Right. We're aiming to get the targets. Are we still ultra-accommodative? You own that phrase. Are we still in the land of ultra-accommodative? I think we're in the land of accommodative. I'm not sure about uh, yeah. ultra. Uh, well, this is Stanley Fisher. Good morning to all of you on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. Um, I, I love the CFR speech of November to the Council on Foreign Relations. You, you, I love your mathematics, the having of productivity. We've cut our productivity growth in half. That's the core issue. Is it about technology? Is it about automation? Can you give us this mysterious thing, the efficiency of economy? What's the why of our having? Uh, We've, the, worldwide, there's a slowdown in measured productivity. There are some people who argue, and they have a basis for their arguments, that uh, the data become less and less appropriate as the economy moves to being more and more a services uh, economy. Productivity growth is most rapid in the manufacturing sector, uh, always. That's where you see it happening. We're have a very small manufacturing sector in terms of employment. We're, in fact, producing roughly the same share of GDP uh, in manufacturing that we did 20 years ago. Uh, but the, uh, no, the number of workers there is down because they've become mm -hmm. more, uh, more productive. So the, uh, the why is that we don't really have a very good uh, story at the moment. Whether it is measurement, and there certainly is a measurement factor, it's very hard to measure uh, as you're looking at sort of the comfort, the comfort you have mm. in your home and so forth. Um, and uh, we're looking at why it's declined as education of the workforce, uh, but we don't have a single factor to say that's it. We've got it. We've just got to fix that. We've got to do a lot of things to try and get productivity to go up. On the International Watch, two decades ago, you wrote IMF essays from a time of crisis. It was a little red book, not Mao's red book. It was Fisher's uh, red book, and you had to read it if you were doing anything in international economics. Bring the time of crisis to the United States of America. We have someone in the White House now who was elected with a primal scream of we're fed up with the international dialogue. We need wage growth in America. How can you and how can Fed officials assist President Trump towards wage growth? Well, wage growth has started happening. I mean, the rate of increase of wages has gone up. It's somewhere 
we were looking at numbers between two and a half and three, basically, uh, which is not far off where uh, we thought it would be. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we can help by doing what we're supposed to do, which is to keep inflation under control, uh, around 2%, close to 2%, and uh, by continuing to, uh, mm -hmm. to increase allow the interest rate to be such that right. uh, the economy will grow and that employment in particular will grow. The guesstimate, uh, Vice Chairman Fisher, of whether inflation is persistent and will rise or if it will fake and move back to lower inflation, uh, true disinflation, has been there. The Japanese faced this uh, a, a number of years ago. James Bullard of St. Louis has spoken about a regime change. It is controversial uh, in economics. Is this a point where we see Bullard's regime change move from low-level interest rates to high-level interest rates, or do you need to see more evidence? Uh, we're, uh, we're, we've said for a long time we expect interest rates to be gradual and uh, if they reach levels of previous years it'll be a matter of years not of, uh, not of uh, weeks and w or months and we don't know what'll happen that's why we make decisions on, on mm -hmm. policy as we see events in the economy uh, so uh, I don't know whether we'll end up in a new uh, regime or uh, whatever, whatever Jim Bullard calls it. Uh, but I do know that we will be aiming and very likely will be close to 2% mm. inflation uh, and uh, full employment, which somewhere around where we are now, a little, possibly a bit lower. I get a lot of mail when I hear Fed officials talk about full employment. People send me letters and they talk about, no, we're not at full employment, at least not in my town, my uh, community. When, when I look at the sum total of what you and Chair Yellen have to deal with every day, it is this repression, a financial repression, a societal repression within America. How do we, how do we bring the two Americas to a better good? One America is near full employment, but another America is not. How can you help them? Well, there are, there are d differences between uh, the states in, uh, in terms of, em of employment, and uh, we, can only, we can only bring them together by setting the uh, framework in which economic decisions are made, uh, namely, what can people think about the stability of the value of the dollar, our 2% inflation will cause them to think, if we're there, that, it, that we're in a stable inflation situation, a stable price uh, situation. And if we're at full employment, those pressures for hiring people uh, will, uh, will spread from state uh, to state. But we shouldn't exaggerate the uh, differences. We shouldn't exaggerate the number of states that are... Uh, Below uh, that are above the uh, average. I, I've been talking to people from different states in late, lately, and uh, everybody I speak to happened to be below the average uh, mm -hmm. in the last few days. There are states like that as well. Getting uh, the big issue is not so much states, it's what are the professions that people grew up in and what's happened to those professions and how, given that this economy has to be dynamic, it is one of the most dynamic, if not the most dynamic in the world, 
how do we make sure that those people whose skills are, uh, are, dec are declining relative to what the market needs, how do, we how do we help them come out and get good jobs again? One final question. I'm not going to ask you about Russian intelligence or the other politics of Washington. The political storm that your Washington is in right now is remarkable. Whatever anybody's political view, people are buffeted day to day by the news flow. In your world of economics, is this American economy in your classic textbook, Dornbush, Fisher, Stars, is this normal economics that we're living today? Or is there something unique about our American economic experiment? Well, we're, we're coming out of a period, of a very long period in which the economy had to be returned to health after the, uh, financial after the great financial crisis of 2008-2009. Unemployment was quite high during that period. Fortunately, as a result of policies, uh, their, uh, unemployment is close to its average level. But as you say, the average isn't what happens in, to everybody. Um, and uh, I think that's the underlying uh, issue that we have to deal with. And as of uh, now, we haven't seen a major change in the environment in which we're working. We're expecting the economy to warm up. Uh, the election results may have had some effect uh, on how rapidly uh, it seemed to warm up. But, uh, you know, we're dealing... We, we have to ask where will we be a few months from now, not what is happening today. Mm -hmm. We haven't very much changed uh, our view of where we will be. We do expect the economy to be growing at a reasonable rate. And uh, I think uh, anybody who's deeply interested in this would have listened to Janet Yellen yesterday and uh, the day before uh, talking about signs of strengthening of the economy and uh, the reason that the Fed is a little more confident about where we're going and how soon we'll get to uh, full employment with, uh, with stable prices. Jason Furman joins us now from Washington, senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, of course, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. It's great to have you with us. And perhaps we should begin with that interview that, that just concluded that Tom did with, with Stan Fisher. Let me get your thoughts on what he had to say about the state of the economy in particular, saying that uh, the central bank will be more or less on the path that the Fed would have expected uh, if improvements in the inflation and job goals continue. Um, I think that's exactly right. And Congress has signed the Fed two objectives, maximum employment and price stability. You can argue about exactly where you think maximum employment is, but I don't think you could argue um, that it's very far from where we are right now. And the Fed has defined price stability as 2% inflation. And by their preferred measure for that, um, we're still below it, but getting close. Um, a number of other measures uh, show us above that right now. So they're they're very close to where they want to be. What's remarkable, though, um, is how low the interest rate needs to be um, in order to hit that target. And I think that tells us something about structural changes we've seen mm. 
in our financial markets and economy. Jason, let me return to that productivity headline. Stan Fisher saying we don't have a good reason for the productivity slowdown. We're saying you and a lot of other smart people have been thinking about this. What are the possible reasons for it? In other words, why are we seeing what we're seeing? One of the biggest factors um, in the last couple of years has been a big slowdown in business investment. In the year 2016, for example, business fixed investment only grew at a 0.4% rate. And when you have less equipment at your disposal, workers are going to be able to produce less per hour. Um, That then pushes the puzzle back one stage, which is why then are businesses not investing as much? I think a lot of it has been a slowdown in global growth rates. A slowdown in global demand means that you don't have the customers, you don't have the order base um, to justify increasing your investment. The good news is if that's the case, I wouldn't expect that to be some permanent condition and would think that you'd see start to see investment bouncing back and, and with it some of the productivity growth coming up. Jason, let me ask you about the role the election has played in what we're seeing in the economy right now. Stan Fisher talking a little bit about this uh, as well, saying it may have had an impact on how fast this economy has heated up. Uh, what's your sense of the longevity here for that? In other words, if, if the economy has gotten hotter since November, uh, how, how long is it going to stay as hot as it is? You know, you've seen a big increase in confidence on the part of businesses and consumers since the election. And, you know, if there's ultimately policies that justify that increase in confidence, um, it can be sustained. But if the policies don't follow it, then, you know, it could be a wily coyote moment (laughs) where, you know, you think there was a reason for all of this to happen. You look down, you discover there's nothing underneath it. Um, you know, stock market valuations, um, you know, the earnings projections underlying them have gone sky high mm-hmm. in the next couple of years. If that doesn't happen, um, we're potentially in for, for a disappointment. Before we move on, just let me give your, your sense of, of uh, the Stan Fisher that we saw this morning. He sounds like uh, he was pleased that a lot of his forecasts have sort of come, come, to, come to fact. Uh, where is this Fed right now as it looks ahead to a real personality personnel change here in the, in the next year? Um, is, is it retrospective? Is it sort of thinking about what's ahead? What, what, did you, what sense of him did you get from this morning? I mean, I, I got the same sense I've gotten every time I've talked to him, which is that our country is incredibly lucky to have him at our central bank, to have Chair Yellen, um, you know, really, really thoughtful people who are you know, trying to do the task um, that Congress assigned to them and, and are doing a, a quite good job. Um, but, but Stan is, 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 soup, is, is always just very careful, um, very judicious, very thoughtful. Um, and and you know your viewers saw that this morning. Let me just pivot to the other big news we saw yesterday. The nominee to be Labor Secretary bowed out. Andy Pudzer bowed out of, of that nomination. Help us understand the role of the Secretary of Labor in 2017. There was a lot of criticism that he was not the right man for the job in terms of what he'd said about automation and and, and the like. Uh, what, what does the Secretary of Labor do in the year 2017? Um, well, one thing that they're going to do is the president has instructed them to look at the so-called fiduciary rule or conflict of interest rule. This is something that our administration put into place to eliminate conflicts of interest for retirement brokers who got paid for giving, in many cases, um, in my view, bad advice. Um, I think anyone who takes a look at that rule would say that that rule is working, that most of the costs associated with it for businesses have already been incurred, 
and that stopping it now means we wouldn't get the benefits. That's going to be one really important job for the labor secretary. Uh, more broadly, though, there's the very traditional set of you know labor issues, whether it's um, enforcement of our rules about wage and hour, enforcement of our rules about you know occupational and workplace safety, and somebody that's going to take all of that seriously, I think, is is an important part of the job. I get a lot of emails from from listeners and from viewers on Bloomberg Television about. Uh, how how handicapped the government might be not having uh, titular heads of these agencies in place. There's been a lot of talk from Republicans especially about how long these confirmation processes have have gone on this time around. How handicapped are these departments right now? Is, is the Labor Department handicapped by not having a permanent Labor Secretary right now? Was the Treasury Department handicapped having to wait three weeks to get Stephen Mnuchin confirmed? I think it's a cost to not have people at the head of these agencies. I think one could then debate whether the problem here was that a lot of these people faced much, much less vetting, got their paperwork in you know, way later than previous sets of nominees did, um, or whether it's the Congress. And you know, one could debate either side of that. There's some, um, there's some cost to all that. But you look at um, non-Senate confirmed people in these agencies in the White House, and you've been really slow to fill – the administration has been really slow to fill those jobs um, as well. So I don't think you can put most of this – on the Senate, um, a lot of this is, is the personnel slowness of, of the administration and, and the rocky start the transition got itself to. What's your, your pitch to the, the sitting president now to fill the job that you had during the Obama administration, to, to fill the chairman of the Council of Economic uh, Advisors jobs? He said that he's not going to make that a cabinet level position. What's the argument for doing that? What's the argument for, for filling it and filling it quickly? You know, I, I, I was uh, proud to be a member of President Obama's cabinet. Um, I think that's a good place for CEA to be. Um, but you can be a really important and influential CEA chair um, without being in the cabinet. Um, it's impossible to be a really important and influential CEA chair if there isn't actually a CEA chair um, in the job. So I think the important thing is picking someone, picking someone good. What I'd say to the president is, you know, you'll find some stuff that help make your case. And that's really good. And you'll also have that person telling you a bunch of things that go against what you think, um, and that's even better and even more important. For those who are lost in the, the alphabet soup of Washington here, you've got the Council of Economic Advisors and you've got the National Economic Council. So these are two, two institutions that share two words in their, in their titles. Um, what's the difference between them and sort of what, what does one do differently? What, what, what's the, the role that Gary Cohn is going to play versus the role that the yet-to-be-named chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors is going to do? Right. Yeah. And you're, you're asking this question to the only one who's worked at both of go. them yeah. twice. Um, and I think they're, they're both really important. The National Economic Council um, is more strategic. It runs the overall process and you know, integrates a level of management, implementation um, and political considerations. The Council of Economic Advisors is staffed by Ph.D. economists and the existence of the National Economic Council means that the Council of Economic Advisors can actually focus more on what the right economics is and what economics says, knowing that at the end of the day, that's a really important consideration. Um, but it shouldn't be the only consideration. Politics and everything else matters. So you have the NEC being more strategic, a little bit more political, the Council of Economic Advisors being more technocratic, more pure economics. And I've seen the two of those work really well together. David Gurr in New York. I'm Tom Keene, our News Bureau in Washington. With us, Jason Furman. You may know the name. 
used to see him on Bloomberg television. He would trot out onto the lawn of the White House on a beautiful bucolic day and brag about moving unemployment single-handedly from 10% down to 4 point whatever percent. You need to take a victory lap on that. We were at 10%, 9%. And you and I know that when the economy improves, unemployment, it comes down rather abruptly. But what was different this time when the unemployment rate came down so nicely? You know, it actually came down faster than I would have thought. Yeah. In 2009, um, Alan Kruger took a look at this question, and he found that the unemployment rate can go up really quickly. You've seen a number of times where it's gone up four percentage points in a year or two. But the fastest in any OECD country it had ever come down after that experience like that was seven-tenths of a percent per year. In this recovery, it fell by more than a percentage point per year for several years um, in a row. So... You know, it surprised everyone. It, it consistently came in below expectations. So within the, that was a victory lap, David Guerrero, for Jason <laughs> Furman. <laughs> and as part of the negotiation with Adam Posen and the Peterson yes. Institute. Okay, great. Except John Edwards stood on a lawn, I believe, in Louisiana umpteen years ago and said there are two Americas. Another think tank, the Economic Policy Institute, will say, wait a minute, Jason Furman, lose the victory lap. There's two Americas. Does Chair Yellen still have that slack in the economy, even with the great unemployment rate? You know, there's two Americas, um, but when the economy does better, those Americas come closer. So you look at 2015, and incomes grew the most at the bottom and middle of the distribution, faster than they grew at the top of the distribution. And that's because we were running a strong economy in 2015. It was even stronger in 2016. We don't have the income data um, yet to take a look at that. And I think the Fed, um, I think they're close, but I think there's a you know probably a little bit more room um, that they have. There's more room for faster real wage growth, especially um, if productivity growth rebounds, which, which is, as uh, Vice Chair Fisher said, is, is critical. Jason, since you walked off that White House lawn for the last time, how much time have you spent thinking about the, the economic forces that played a role in this election? Uh, rightfully or wrongfully, we can we can debate that, but it was clear that a lot of people who voted for uh, the now president uh, cited the economy as a reason for doing so. Um, I've certainly spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I think a set of concerns that people have um, are justified. Things were moving um, in the right direction. Things were getting better. Things could have been a lot worse. All three of those statements are true, um, but things weren't good enough. And, you know, people are right to think that things weren't good enough and people are right to think that that requires, um, you know, a policy change. That was a policy change we were trying to make in our administration. Much of it was being blocked um, by Congress. But I I understand where the frustration was. I think the unfortunate thing is um, that I don't think you're going to see policies that deliver – on that desire um, for change. You've taken your, your victory lap at, at Tom's behest, and we heard from Steve <laughs> Fisher talking about the economy this morning. How tenuous is the state of the U.S. economy right now? If it is in, in decent or good shape, uh, how, how at risk is it from, from falling from that? Look, I think the economy is, is in as good and solid shape um, as it can be. You know, valuations in the stock market seem to me a little bit frothy and, and don't seem fully justified by the changes in fundamentals that we've seen. Um, So there's some pockets of concern, but overall, um, you know, debt levels are relatively low. Um, Balance sheets in the financial sector 
are relatively healthy, a lot of the things that we would look at, a lot of the imbalances um, are absent. But we should realize that, you know, in any given year, it's about a 15 percent chance that the economy goes into recession. Whether or not everything is healthy, um, you have that chance. And I don't think this year um, would be any different than, than any other in that regard. I want to talk about the Peterson Institute in the, the short time that we have left with you. What a joy to talk to Fred Burston the other day about what he wrought. Adam Posen has picked it up with Olivier Blanchard and Nathan Sheets joining now and you joining. What do you want to accomplish at the Peterson Institute? What's what's the firm and mandate? Um, well, I think the Peterson Institute is just you know, a fantastic collection of people really focused on macroeconomic issues, trade, um, international economics. There's a really lively internal debate there. A lot of people don't, you know, don't agree on all sorts of issues. Um, but everyone agrees on the importance of evidence. And everyone has an open mind about where that evidence leads them. Um, that's the spirit in which I tried to run the Council of Economic yeah. Advisors. And that's very much the spirit in which Adam runs yeah. the, the Peterson Institute. What did you learn from the Fisher uh, interview? I know David Gurr asked you this question before, but let's sum up with it quickly uh, here. What a delicate tightrope he has to walk right now. It's just, you know, for the Fed, so much of their job depends on what productivity growth is, and so little of what they do can actually affect productivity growth. That's and that's one of the big, the big challenges <laughs> that they face. Spoken like a think tank guy, Jason Furman. Thank you so much for that imposing at the Peterson uh, Institute. And just fabulous, generous of you to be with us this hour uh, uh, with uh, the vice chairman of the Fed. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. It has been an exceptional week of political economics and economic politics. We're going to get to that with a very special guest here. David, what do you see up there? You and I aren't talking. <laughs> no, no, I miss you here. And I was off yesterday, of course, nursing this nursing this cold. I think I finally kicked it. But, uh, you know, just watching what's happening out of the White House, I think the, the back and forth yeah. over what's going on at the National Security Council continues to interest me. And, uh, you know, the, yeah. the, the story that broke last night in the Wall Street Journal about how uh, some intelligence agencies reportedly are holding back, giving information to the president. There's just a wrinkle after wrinkle after wrinkle in yeah, this story. I walked by the FBI building. And, that uh, brutalist structure on the brutalist, Pennsylvania Ave. Yeah. The, the brutalist structure. And, you know, it's just like I, I, I was channeling Mulder. You know, it's like X-Files it. redux it. overlaid <laughs> upon the intelligence of the moment. He watched every episode of X-Files. Joining us, uh, Douglas Holtz-Eakin, who uh, provided real national leadership at the Congressional Budget Office a few years ago. Uh, and has just been exceptionally important to us in giving fiscal perspective linked into overall economics. He's, of course, with the American Action uh, Forum. Uh, Dr. Holtzikin, let me cut to the chase. What action do you need from President Trump right now? I think he needs to come out and forcefully endorse uh, tax reform and get the Congress uh, moving legislatively on that agenda. There is no single policy that would have a quicker impact and a more lasting impact than a good pro-growth tax reform. I've been looking that's at the key. Your CBO, Alice Rivlin, CBO, Almondorf, CBO. I've been looking at a lot of CBO articles recently. In your head, how do you match up revenues 
and increased Trumpian spending you know, within the, the rhetoric of the discourse that you hear right now. Are we going to be okay? Or are we heading back to uh, twin deficit uh, angst? Uh, they, they, they don't add up. So let's, they let's, don't let's, add let's up. not be too uh, uh, obsessed with that. I think the key here is that, you know, President Trump inherited a fiscal outlook that's unsustainable. That's that's a numerical reality that the CBO has displayed every time it puts out a report. And the president has a, a policy agenda that doesn't make that better. It makes it worse. So at some point, a year down the line, two years down the line, I don't know exactly when, that reality will begin to constrain the things that he can do as opposed to what he wants to do. And that's going to be an important moment. Is it going to take that long? I mean, I've, I've seen the enthusiasm for this this fiscal package diminish among some of the guests that we've talked to on on the show. I mean, I think there was some immediate enthusiasm after the election that we were going to see a big fiscal stimulus, and now maybe the, the deficit hawks are starting to, to circle. Is it going to take a year? Is it going to take two years for people to really reckon with what's going to happen? Well, I think a, a president gets a year. I mean, you know, typically you get uh, 100 days and, and one big campaign promise uh, for sure, and then uh, after the first year, the momentum starts to slow and you get into midterm elections and things get bogged down. So I, I still think there's a, it's a year away. I, for the record, never saw the big fiscal stimulus and I thought markets overpriced that. Um, there was never going to be, in my view, a big infrastructure spending bill that, that had a lot of cash flowing out of the federal treasury quickly. There's a place for good infrastructure investments. They need to be identified, they need to be funded, and they need to be executed. That's a years-long thing. Uh, I didn't think that a big tax cut was in the cards. The kinds of uh, numbers he promised on the campaign trail were completely unrealistic. And the whole time he was saying that, we had a Speaker Ryan and a Chairman Brady talking about revenue-neutral tax reform. So I I didn't think they were really going to go there either. So outside of raising the defense spending cap, there isn't much, in my view, that was going to go on quickly. And so a big fiscal stimulus of the traditional Keynesian type, I never thought was in the cards. You speak of the need for a pro-growth tax reform package. Do you have a sense of who's driving that? We heard from the president there was going to be a tremendous or a fantastic or some sort of superlative uh, tax plan on, re- revealed by the White House in these next few weeks, and that Gary Cohn, the head of the NEC, is going to be the person coming up with that. Meanwhile, on the Hill, we hear from Kevin Brady and others that they're working on one themselves. Is there much unanimity between the Republican Congress and the White House on the issue of tax reform? Uh, I'd say there are really three distinct camps. There's the House, the Senate, and the White House, and they are not even close to on the same page at the moment. The House has been driving this because the House actually has its blueprint for for a better way to, to tax, and that's been the subject of most of the conversation. That's at odds with the yeah. political mechanics you need to get it done. You need yeah. White House leadership. Douglas Holzikin from our 991 studios here in Washington, a gorgeous day. Uh, David in Washington. The Volmers down here, David. I'm trying to get Capitals tickets. Uh-huh. I don't know where we stand on that. <laughs> Dr. Holtzikin. I have no tickets. Help me with the question I asked. Help, well, then good. He's gone. See him. Uh, help me here with George Magnus in London this morning. I'm going to ask you the same question. Austerity is an American psych. We, we enjoy, we bathe in our austerity. Of those three Republican camps and voices and ethos, is one of them a real austerity, and can it be a good austerity? Uh, there is a, a serious austerity caucus in the House of Representatives. Uh, it's not evident in the Senate or the White House at the moment. Uh, there are good and bad flavors in the House. There's one which recognizes that we have entitlement spending programs that are outpacing our capacity to fund them, and that those programs actually 
aren't really great programs. Medicare doesn't deliver the quality of health care it should. Medicaid has uh, and you issues. you call that a constructive austerity? Yeah, those programs need reform okay. because we deserve better programs. What is destructive austerity? Explain that to our audience. That's um, spending caps on the annual discretionary spending, the national security, basic research, infrastructure, education. All the things our founders saw as the role of government and the place where the federal government genuinely invests in the future putting caps on that to make the budget look good and not figuring out the policy that, that supports it, that's bad austerity. That's just starving the wrong part of the budget. Can President Trump push against that, and I keep using this phrase, like a Rockefeller Republican? Or is he just naive that he's not going to get what he wants when he says, do this, do this, do that? Uh, he can. Uh, you know, president's very powerful. He can reach across party lines and, and, and make things stick. So he is the key figure in this. He has said he wants to raise the cap on defense spending. I haven't heard him say anything about non-defense discretionary spending. And that's part of the recipe. We'll see. When you look at um, the budget process, we're seeing a return, it seems, to regular order in Washington, D.C. How big a deal is that, that we have uh, a budget process that's not going to be decided uh, by a couple of months here and a couple of months there. We're getting back to, to what's been traditionally the, the process. What does that mean for budgeting in Washington? I think we're seeing something that's nothing short of extraordinary. Uh, for a, a Congress that rarely passes a budget in the House, passes a budget in the Senate, and then agrees on it, they're promising to do two of those in the space of four months. That's unbelievable. And And if they actually execute on that, they will for the first time have a genuine set of plans that the House and Senate agree on. One hopes that uh, through the, 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 the back channels, the White House is on board as well. And we rarely see that kind of cohesion. We haven't seen it in eight years where Republicans fought everything the Democrats were trying to do. Uh, but that would really change the capacity to have both the policies that they want and the budgetary room to execute them. Who's leading that that effort on on Capitol Hill? Is is there is there somebody? Is is it Paul Ryan? Is it the House Speaker who's pushing that forward? Uh, he's instrumental. There's no question. Uh, he you know he was the chairman of the House Budget Committee for a long time, so he understands how that process works. Over on the Senate side, I think you have to give a lot of credit to to Mitch McConnell. He's uh, really got uh, those Republican senators who have the capacity to be very independent, pretty unified, and he held them together when they were in the minority, and now they're in the majority. So I think, you know, the leadership is the key, and it's, it's present in both the House and the Senate. When you, when you look at what might be in that budget, is there a cognizance of deficit issues in, in what you're seeing on the Hill, uh, exclusive of the fiscal package we were talking about a few, a few moments ago? Do you think that there's more awareness of the deficit in the budget that's being crafted on the Hill? I, I think there is. I mean, Republicans uh, have for a number of years put together budgets where they're, they're, their goal was to come to balance in 10 years. Personally, I think that's too quick and unrealistic, but the aspirational goal is the important thing. That's not going to go away. They're always worried about the size of the debt. Uh, there's a debt limit increase that has to happen this spring. That's going to be a very tough moment and a place where uh, I think you're going to see those who are concerned about the fiscal outlook extract a, a, a price for it. David Gurry in New York, in Bloomberg 1130, uh, New York, and of course our New York uh, headquarters. I'm in Washington, 99.1 FM studios. And with us, Douglas Holtzikin. Uh, truly one of our most interesting economists with tangible fiscal experience at CBO and also just looking at our overarching macroeconomics. Can the Federal Reserve dictate the tone of our fiscal economics? Is there a point where they can jawbone or nudge mm. legislators to spend money, Doug? Uh, on average, no. I think uh, they've begged the Congress for a number of years to, to have a more aggressive fiscal policy. 
I think, you know, Janet Yellen has been on Capitol Hill, Ben Bernanke before her saying, you know, monetary policy will do what it can, but we, we would be really helpful if we had a more expansionary uh, fiscal policy. Never happened. The moment that this, that is the exception to that rule is the appointment of a new chair. And in the, the testimony and the confirmation process, I think the new chair could lay down the, the law and say, look, you know, we've done what we can do. If you want me to take this job, you have to do something. And, and that's the moment where maybe they could have some influence. When we talk about the, the new Fed, who's going to fill these roles, do we, do we have a good sense of who these people will be? Do we have uh, personalities? Do, we, do, you, do you have names you think will be appointed to the board? Uh, I, I don't have a, a long list, to be honest. I think it's been interesting to watch the appointments process because I think for most of the cabinet positions, there have been a lot of surprises, things that people didn't see coming. Um, so, you know, I, no, no one, I think, thought we'd see Rick Perry over at the Department of Energy. That was a bit of a surprise. And Ben Carson at HUD. So um, I'm, I'm waiting to see what sort of hints they have about Fed appointees, and I know the markets are as well. What did you hear from Janet Yellen this week about the balance sheet, this multi-billion-dollar balance sheet the Fed has? Now she was pressured by uh, certainly senators on on Tuesday to talk about how she would would draw that down. What's the what's the path forward for the balance sheet? I think they've basically handled the balance sheet issue in, in terms of the communications with the Congress and the and the markets about the same as they've handled the rate hikes. A commitment to have them, a commitment for them to be done in a measured fashion. And no particulars on the timetable, a data-dependent approach. And I think that's probably appropriate, and I don't see anything happening in the balance sheet this year. I think it's a 2018 uh, issue at, at the earliest. You've, you've been in Washington for a while. I wonder how participatory this Congress and this administration seems to be. We're talking about tax reform and all of the, the other three parties working on it. Uh, is, is it possible to make your voice heard? Is, are, are, are people able to participate in these processes of writing tax reform, writing uh, financial regulation reform, for instance? I think the answer to that is yes. Um, the Congress has a phenomenal agenda. I mean, it's the most ambitious thing we've ever seen. You know, two budget resolutions, funding the government for fiscal 17 and 18, tax reform, repealing and replacing Obama, Obamacare, raising the defense cap, repealing all these regulations and doing regulatory reform, uh, increasing defense spending, raising the debt ceiling, confirming a Supreme Court justice, confirming the nominees. That's, oh. If you think about it, that's an enormous <clears throat> amount. They can't do that in a silo, so they beg for help. Doug, I want to go Abel Bernanke on you, the textbook of uh, 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 Benjamin Bernanke. David Blanchflower up at Dartmouth is quite upset about the assumption by Fed officials, including the good vice chairman, that we're reaching full employment. And David Blanchflower says, geez, there's a lot of Americans out there that wouldn't agree with that statement. Can a Fed work within a bimodal America of employed and not employed, or do they just have to discard the unemployed and just focus on the tensions within a fully employed, technologically proficient America? The Fed has limited tools, and as a result, I think they are begging for uh, the Congress and the, the administration to come up with some policies to help the targeted unemployed who have, you know, prime-age males who seem to have left the labor force entirely, um, those kinds of really uh, difficult issues, they can't reach that with monetary policy. The setting of interest rates doesn't help. I think the Fed's going to look at, more than in anything else, what appear to be indicators of labor market slack or absence. And if we start seeing rapid wage increases, things like that, we they're going to say to we're there. To be clear, even after the inflation pop of yesterday, Hotsius at Goldman Sachs goes to a tilt towards a March rate increase. I get the parlor game. But we're still waiting. Am I right? We're still waiting to see wage growth 
that causes concern to pros like you? Yeah, I, we We're haven't seen there. anything. Nothing. No, not yet. And the corollary to that, and the, and the deeper concern is, we have very poor productivity growth in the United States. Which is what States. Stan mentioned. And that's the issue. And I, I want to make this clear, folks. It's so important. As a CFR speech of November, he used the word "halved." We've cut in half yep. our productivity growth. What's your quickly? What's your why in that, Doctor? Uh, I, I don't think there's any single thing. I think we've done you know too much on the regulatory front. We have a bad tax code. You know we've got <clears throat> big deficits that are that are impinging the interest in people investing in this economy. So we need to button things up, have a better tax can you code, support do better regulation. Invest, uh, can you support an LBJ like investment tax credit that is directly used to create jobs, including money coming back from abroad? Uh, I think a better approach is what they've got in the in the House bill, which is expensing of all uh, tangible and intangible investments. Fantastic. Almost the same idea. It's almost the same idea. What that it's means permanent, tra- not transitory. Tra- yeah, and- translating that from the whole seeking means you take it in the first year, right? Yes, everything's up front. <laughs> oh, never enough time. Douglas Holtzikin, thank you so much. Uh, really quite helpful with the American Action Forum. Stephen Ratner joins us now, chairman of Willett Advisors. Uh, great to see you as always, Steve. I'm looking at your Twitter page here, at Steve Ratner, and uh, I see you, you tweeted here about Andy Pudzer, the former nominee to be uh, Labor Secretary, saying he may have been the worst Labor Secretary nominee, opposed minimum wage hikes, overtime pay and paid sick leave, favors ACA repeal, favors machines over people. Uh, what was it that sank him ultimately? One of those many things or, or something else entirely? Well, no, I think what actually sank him ultimately was his personal issues of having an undocumented uh, immigrant uh, for which he didn't pay uh, taxes for many years, uh, as well as some issues with a former wife and, and just a lot of personal stuff. You know, Democrats have been trying to get a scalp since this administration arrived, and, and they finally got one with a lot of help from Mr. Pudzer himself uh, based on his own conduct. What does this say to uh, folks who have been in business, say, uh, who may be thinking about joining government? Uh, surely <laughs> their circumstances may be different than, than Mr. Pudzer's, but uh, there, there's a lot of pain and problems that comes with confirmation hearings that, that might they might rather just avoid. Well, that's true, but this pain was completely self-inflicted, and I don't think the average business person has this set of issues. In fact, I would say in this administration, with the Republican Congress, they have waved through people with uh, financial situations that raised a lot more questions than in previous administrations. I mean, what I'm trying to say is if you're a business guy right now, it is a lot easier to get confirmed than it was four years ago or eight years ago or 12 years ago. What's going – let me get your perspective on, on governance. We see – we see the disarray looking at uh, the new cover of Time magazine. It is Donald Trump in the, in the middle of a hurricane uh, with the headline, Nothing to See Here. What's happening from a governance perspective with this administration? Well, first of all, Donald Trump loves to be on the cover of Time magazine. Yes, so true. even in, the eye of, in a, hur- a hurricane, he's probably happy. Uh, look, by all accounts, what's happening is almost the worst of all worlds. You have a president with no experience who's hired a team with no experience with no defined organizational structure in the White House, multiple people functioning effectively as a kind of a chief of staff, and then they have their own little power centers. And it is the most chaotic, the most disorganized. And and I guess to your earlier question, it, it doesn't really reflect well that a businessman who's supposed to be able to run things could come in and be running something as badly as I think by anybody's estimation he's running it. Are you going to be the intelligence czar? 
Well, is that I, where we're heading? You know, I love Steve Feinberg. <laughs> I've worked with him on Chrysler. He's a great guy. He's a great investor. But if he's qualified to reorganize the intelligence <laughs> services, well, I am too. I've actually spent more time in Washington than Steve Feinberg has. So it's it's another one of these really, really odd appointments. You know, yeah. you make Steve Feinberg uh, Secretary of Commerce yeah. or even Secretary of the Treasury, you could kind of understand that. But uh, the intelligence services? You know, that thud, David, you heard this morning was me falling out of my bed in the Grand Hyatt Hotel when I heard this. Steve, you know, I'm going to go back to what Gideon Rose of Foreign Affairs Magazine lectured us on a few days ago. This is Tom Nichols, folks, out of the Navy War College. And, Steve, it really goes to, to what you've been so good at over the years, the death of experts. I mean, whatever anybody's politics, this is, for the most part, an administration really struggling with finding experts like Douglas Holtz Eakin to help them move forward. I mean, they're just not doing that, are they? Well, when you say they're struggling, they're, they're not struggling. They're not even trying uh, to find experts. It's not like they aren't out there. They've just chosen not to hire them. Look, I, I would say that I do understand the best available athlete school of thought. I think if you look at the British system where they move ministers around from department to department, even where they don't have experience, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to be said for fresh ideas, people who aren't embedded in the system and so on. But you have to balance that with people who do have experience. If they wanted to bring in a couple of business guys next to some people who actually had real Washington experience, I think we'd all cheer. But they've just gone off the rails. What's your sense, uh, lastly, here, of of where things are going with the Affordable Care Act? Mark Bertolini, the CEO of Aetna, saying yesterday that we are in a death spiral. Uh, Donald Trump picking up on that and tweeting out that uh, remark, a Bloomberg story with that remark uh, included in it. What's going to happen with that law? Who's going to be defending this law going forward? Well, first of all, uh, Mark, I think Bertolini is correct that on present course and direction, we're in a death spiral because the administration has stopped, in effect, supporting it. They stopped the advertising. You've got the exchanges starting to fail. You've got uh, the problems of of the uh, profile of the signups. You've got all that. And then on the replace, repeal and replace, repeal and repair, whatever you want to call it side, the problem is there is I, – I am not aware of a single plan out there that would keep these 20 million people insured and somehow meet some set of Republican objectives. And therefore, I am I, – I, I think this thing could die of its own – of those two factors in which would be really bad for the country, of course, but it would also be really bad for Trump politically. Right. Not that you're doing the macroeconomic. Well, we're going to run out of time here, Steve. Not going you know, to do the macroeconomic ballet, but we'll see. We'll get Steve Ratner back in, folks, to talk about how all of these discussions actually impinge on economic growth. That may be a topic for April or May as well. Stephen Ratner, thanks so so much with Willett Advisors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.